Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Dow Jones set a record high today, closing above 27,000 for the first time ever. We added 227 spot, 88 points on the day. We closed at 27,088 spot 08. The record high, 27,088 spot 45, set just before the close. You know, we added to yesterday's gains. The S&P 500 also up again, not taking out the record that it set yesterday, but we did for the second day in a row managed to trade above the 3,000 mark, although we have yet to close above it. Ever so close today, 29.99 spot 91 was the close, but a very small percentage gain for the S&P, not even a quarter of 1%. Broader market was weaker. The NASDAQ was actually down slightly, six and a half points. The weakest index being the Russell 2000, down almost a half a percent, and it was lower Uh, during the day. Again, the Russell 2000 is the index that is most sensitive to the domestic economy. And I've pointed out on this podcast many times that that is the index that is the weakest and is not even close to making a new high. And I don't believe it will. I think the broader market is going to roll over and the small caps are going to lead the way. In fact, If the traders were paying attention to what was going on in the bond market, we probably would have seen a bigger sell-off today. I think we still have some euphoria left over from the two-day Dove Fest where uh, Fed Chairman Powell was up on Capitol Hill basically green-lighting the July rate cut, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Remember, when we got that better-than-expected non-farm payroll report, the odds of a rate cut in July went down from about 100% to maybe 91%. And the odds really came down for the probability of a 50 basis point cut. So it was pretty much 91%, I think, 25 basis points, and that was it. Uh, But after Powell released his prepared remarks, I mean, before he even made it up to Capitol Hill, Just merely when the markets got a look at his prepared testimony, the odds of a rate cut in July immediately went back up to 100%. And in fact, the odds of a 50 basis point cut went back up to 20%. So the jobs number means nothing now. It's all systems go for a rate cut. I mean, certainly if Powell wanted to backpedal, if he wanted to dampen expectations of a rate cut. He had plenty of opportunity to do that. Instead, he basically waved the markets on. And of course, at this point, Powell is afraid to disappoint the markets. He certainly doesn't want to disappoint President Trump. Uh, Everybody expects the Fed to cut rates. The reason the stock market made a new high today, at least the Dow uh, and the S&P yesterday, is solely because of the Fed. It's got nothing to do with the actual U.S. economy. And of course, the markets are ignoring the carnage that has been taking place in the bond market, particularly today. This was one of the weakest days I've seen in the bond market. And in fact, the weakness started earlier in the day when we got a slightly hotter than expected CPI number, which I'll get to in a minute. But then later in the day, we had a horrific 30-year bond auction, probably one of the worst bond auctions we've ever had as far as demand. And then bond uh, prices really started to plunge and the yield spiked. The yield on the 30-year now is back up to 2-spot 641. Uh, That's about the highest it's been since the end of May. 
the yield on the 10-year rose as well pretty sharply. We're back up to two spot one two. Remember, we were below 2%, and now we're at two spot one two and rising. And if you recall, I have been warning on this podcast, and it's probably the only place that anybody hears this type of warning, but what I've been saying is that when the Fed finally gets around to cutting rates, that long-term interest rates would actually rise. I've been thinking that it would be a buy the rumor, sell the fact on the long end of the curve, and that when the Fed finally reduced short-term rates, we would see an increase in long-term rates. Well, now that basically Powell has said it's a sure thing and removed all doubts, I think traders are not waiting for the fact. They're already selling. And the bond market is already getting hammered. And I think this is just the beginning of a major move up in long-term interest rates that will continue even after the Fed cuts short-term rates. And this is going to be extremely problematic for the Fed and for the economy. Because remember, the main reason that the Fed is cutting rates, other than to try to keep the air from coming out of the stock market bubble, is to try to prevent the recession from happening, or at least delay the beginning of the recession until after the 2020 election. Now, I know the level of the stock market and the economy are related because, after all, the recovery was built on the wealth effect of high asset prices, which includes stocks. And, of course, there's a lot to be said about confidence. And when the stock market is up, people can be more confident. And, of course, President Trump needs a high stock market because that's the barometer for the success of his presidency. So the Fed needs to keep the stock market up so Donald Trump can keep taking credit for the high stock market, even though it's clearly the Fed that is you know, causing the market to go up, not Donald Trump, unless, of course, you want to credit Donald Trump for beating up the Fed so badly that they had no choice but to cut rates. And Trump either did that by uh, telling uh, Powell to cut rates or simply by threatening to wreck the global economy to create all the uncertainty that Powell keeps bringing up as a justification for his rate cut. But the whole thing is ridiculous because Powell kept talking about how there's all this uncertainty. There's always uncertainty. I mean, the future is not certain. I mean, it's always uncertain. So to say that because the Fed is uncertain about what's going to happen in the future, it's got to cut rates. Look, it's never even accurate. Even when it thinks it knows what's going to happen in the future, it's always wrong. So what difference does it make? I mean, clearly this is all political. The Fed is trying to prop up uh, the economy, uh, but it's not going to succeed because when interest rates rise and they're going to rise, that is going to complicate what the Fed is trying to do. Remember, the Fed is trying to help the economy by lowering rates. But if by lowering rates, rates actually go up because the Fed is not controlling the long end, uh, then it's going to make it more difficult because it's going to exacerbate the very recession that the Fed is hoping to avoid by cutting rates. So, of course, what is the Fed going to do once the long end of the bond market rises? Well, QE. That's what they're going to do, right? They're going to say, well, if the if the interest rates are rising, if bond prices are falling, the Fed needs to intervene. The Fed needs to come back into the bond market with quantitative easing to buy up all these bonds that nobody in the private sector wants. So this is what's going to happen. Now, I think that is going to backfire too, but there is going to be a backup in rates between the first rate cut and the return to quantitative easing. And one of the reasons that bond prices are falling is because inflation is accelerating. In fact, the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell specifically stated that the reason that he is cutting rates is because he is worried that inflation is too low, that we don't have enough inflation, and therefore he is going to cut rates to make sure that we get more inflation. Well, more inflation would be the last thing you wanted if you were holding on to a 10-year or a 30-year U.S. government bond. So the fact that inflation is picking up is very negative for bonds. But of course, it's also negative for the dollar and bullish for gold, but the markets haven't figured that out. In fact, it was ironic that while Powell was up on Capitol Hill today in front of the Senate, yesterday the House, and I'm going to get to some of the, the lowlights uh, from uh, that testimony uh, when I'm done with uh, this topic. Uh, 
But uh, as he was talking about the fact that inflation wasn't high enough, that it was too low, as if, you know, you've got all the stuff that the Fed legitimately needs to worry about. We have real problems that the Fed couldn't care less about. Yet the one thing they're worrying about is a non-problem, and that is inflation being too low. It's not too low. And the data that we get today proves it. But of course, unfortunately, the Fed is basically cutting rates really for three reasons, to prop up the market, to prop up the economy, which are interrelated, and to push up inflation. Well, they're going to fail at the former, for sure. But unfortunately, their only success is going to be the latter. The Fed is going to have success in creating more inflation. Unfortunately, its only success is also going to be its biggest failure because the job of a central bank isn't to create inflation any more than the job of a fireman is to set fires, right? The fire department is there to put out fires. The Federal Reserve is there to prevent inflation, not create it. But that is what the Fed is embarking on. But on the very day that Powell is up there saying we don't have enough inflation, we got a hotter than expected CPI number that came out today. They were looking for uh, zero, unchanged, for uh, consumer prices in June. And instead, we were up 0.1. But the real uh, beat was in the core which is what the Fed always likes to look at, ex-food and energy. They were looking for an increase of 0.2, and instead we got an increase of 0.3. That is the biggest gain in the core CPI in a year and a half. So if we have the fastest gain in a year and a half, why is the Fed worried that we don't have enough inflation? In fact, if you look at the year-over-year core, which again, the Fed says they like to take away the headline, they don't want to look at the noise, they want to look at the core, the year-over-year was up 2.1% versus expectations of 2%. But this is the 11th month in a row where we've had a two-handle on year-over-year core. So if the Fed's inflation target is 2% and we've been at 2% or greater in the core for the last 11 months, what are they so concerned about? Why are they so worried? Why are they cutting rates? Clearly, it's not because inflation is too low. And in fact, look what's going on in the oil market. You know, oil prices were up, I think, over $2 yesterday. We're back above $60 a barrel. We closed at 60 spot 08 today. Uh, we could easily start moving higher in the price of oil. And so inflation is going to accelerate, especially if we see some more weakness in the dollar. I mean, the dollar had a nice decline yesterday, and it was down today. Uh, but it managed to finish the day about unchanged because after that hotter than expected CPI number came out, the the dollar rose and gold fell off. I mean, gold dropped about 10, 12 bucks almost immediately. You know, we were up about six or seven dollars uh, last night, early this morning. That followed yesterday's a $20 gain in the price of gold. We were up at around 14 uh, 25 or so and we closed just above 1400 I think 1402 and changed down about 15 bucks uh, on on the day versus you know yesterday's rally so we gave back a good chunk but not all of yesterday's rally simply because we had uh, higher than expected inflation and again I've been talking about this phenomenon on this podcast it doesn't make sense it's completely wrong but every time traders, currency traders, gold traders see higher inflation, their instinctive trade is to buy dollars and sell gold, which makes no sense, right? Because gold is an inflation hedge. More inflation is another reason to buy gold, not sell it. Higher inflation, by definition, is the dollar losing value, right? It's losing purchasing power. So if the dollar is losing purchasing power, why does that give you an extra reason to want to buy it? If inflation is rising, you would want to get rid of your dollars to avoid uh, a further erosion of their value. But this is how the markets think. When the market sees higher than expected inflation, they immediately think, aha, the Fed's going to have to tighten. The The Fed is going to have to have tighter monetary policy to fight off this inflation, even though the Fed has just told you that that's not what it's going to do. The Fed couldn't care less about inflation. The Fed wants more inflation. It's going to cut rates no matter what. The markets still haven't figured this part out yet. And in fact, none of it matters. I don't care if inflation is 3%, 4%, 
the Fed is not going to tighten. So higher interest rates don't mean the Fed is going to fight inflation. They mean the Fed is going to surrender and inflation is going to win. And if inflation is going to win, then you don't want to own dollars and you do want to own gold. So the people who sold gold and bought dollars did the wrong thing. Now, at some point, they're going to figure out the box that the Fed is in and that the Fed is not going to fight inflation. And then higher than expected inflation numbers will be correctly perceived as bullish for gold and bearish for the dollar. Because remember, inflation going up means that real yields are coming down because real yields are the nominal yield minus inflation. And the most bullish thing you get for gold is low real yields or negative real yields, which is exactly where we're going. And of course, it's also bearish for bonds because inflation that's left unchecked, that's not going to be fought, is going to erode away the value of long-term bonds, which is one of the reasons that bond prices are falling and why they are going to continue to fall because the only thing the Fed is going to succeed in doing is creating more inflation. Now, I want to uh, spend a little time giving everybody my thoughts on the Powell testimony. And again, this is all political theatrics. I mean, if you look at a lot of the questions that are being asked, I mean, nobody really cares uh, what the answer is. They're just trying to get a soundbite on the record. A lot of times they're asking Powell questions that aren't even appropriate to monetary policy. They're just trying to get that soundbite and they're hoping to get Jerome Powell to say something that either supports uh, their political agenda or undermines the political agenda of their opponent. Uh, so if you're a Republican, uh, you want to get the uh, the Fed chairman to say something supportive of Trump and the tax cuts, and uh, you want to say something negative about the Democrats, and of course the Democrats want to get Powell to say something negative about what Trump wants to do and, and, and to try to create uh, you know something that they can use on the campaign trail. So the, the funny part about uh, the whole thing is that all the Democrats suddenly care about the independence of the Fed, right? This is like the most important issue they have now is Fed independence. And they want to uh, congratulate Powell for hanging tough. They want to let him know that, you know, the Congress has got his back. They don't want him to quit. They don't want him to, to cave into political pressure to cut rates. They believe in the importance of the independence of the central bank. This is all a bunch of nonsense. I mean, they couldn't, they didn't care about this uh, when Obama was president, and they're certainly not going to care about it in a couple of years when a Democrat is president. I mean, this is like the Republicans who cared about the deficits when Obama was president, but couldn't care less about the deficits now uh, that Trump is president. In fact, even Democrats now want to pretend that they care about the deficits, which is really rich. They couldn't give a damn. But since the deficits are going up and, they, and they're not in power, well, then they want to criticize the Republicans for the big deficits. And in fact, you know, there was a little bit of discussion of the deficits. I mean, not nearly enough. I mean, really what Powell should be doing is lecturing the hell out of Congress, uh, telling them that they need to cut these deficits right now. But of course, he's complicit. He's their partner in crime. He is making it easier for the Congress not to have to do anything by the deficit, by keeping interest rates low and ultimately by returning to quantitative easing. But he did have some warnings. He did say in the long run, whenever that is, or actually he said in, in the intermediate term or the long run, that these deficits will be a problem if we don't do anything about it. And we're not going to do anything about it. So that means they will be a problem. And he even talked about the fact that it could cause the U.S. dollar to lose its status as the reserve currency, which is a huge problem that obviously uh, they are belittling by just casually mentioning it without actually dealing with uh, with the ramifications. You know, one of the questions that, that came up today uh, had to do with raising the debt ceiling. And of course, uh, the Fed chairman is all in favor of raising the debt ceiling, right? Now, if he really cared about the, the debt, right, he would not be encouraging the debt ceiling to be raised. He would be encouraging Congress to cut spending so they didn't need to take on any additional debt so they wouldn't have to raise the ceiling. So the fact that on the one hand, he's warning about the problems of too much debt, and on the other hand, he's encouraging even more debt, right, is a, is a contradictory. But the reason he gave for why we need to raise a debt ceiling is the same BS reason that everybody gives. Powell said that we need to raise the debt ceiling because America always pays its bills. 
And if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we can't pay our bills. And so we need to raise the debt ceiling so that we can continue to pay our bills. And Powell, like everybody else, has it backwards. The reason we have to raise the debt ceiling is because we can't pay our bills. We don't pay our bills. That's why we need to take on more debt so we can avoid paying our bills. So raising the debt ceiling allows us to continue not paying our bills and instead putting our bills on a national credit card and so the national debt goes up. We have a $22.5 trillion national debt. What does that $22.5 trillion represent? Unpaid bills. That's what it is. If America always paid its bills, as Jerome Powell suggests, we wouldn't have a national debt because we would have paid for everything. We would have paid as we went. We would have paid for the cost of government as we incurred it. But we didn't do that. We borrowed the money instead of paying the bills because nobody wants to actually pay the bills. So we just want to borrow indefinitely. Now, of course, we have no intention of ever paying the bills because it's impossible because we owe too much money. But that doesn't mean we're going to get away scot-free. It just means that the piper is going to get paid in another way. It's going to be massive inflation. It's going to be economic chaos. There is going to be a day of reckoning for all these decades of not paying bills and instead running up the national debt. But all Jerome Powell can think of to tell Congress is make sure to raise that debt ceiling so that we can postpone the day of reckoning for as long as possible, even though he's already pointing out that a day of reckoning is coming in the intermediate run or the long run. See, they never want to say the day of reckoning is coming in the short run. But one of these days, the intermediate run, whenever that starts, is going to be the short run because eventually the future becomes the present. So at some point, we're going to be at the point where Powell is warning about, except it's not going to come with a warning. We're going to be there and we're not going to be able to do anything about it. And I think that day of reckoning is a lot closer than just about anybody thinks, including Chairman Powell. Although, you know, one of the things I was waiting for, because this whole thing is so political, right? I was waiting for one of the uh, Democrats, either a senator or a congressman, to be smart enough to point blank ask Jerome Powell if he agrees with President Trump that we have the strongest economy in the history of America. I mean, I was waiting for somebody to ask that question. Not only A, to get an answer that could embarrass the president, right, if you're a Democrat asking it, but also to hear his answer and to hear how he explains we have the strongest economy ever, yet we need to cut interest rates from levels that are already extraordinarily low. Right? We have this great economy, the greatest economy ever, but we need more monetary support. And in fact, we already have massive fiscal support. You know, you had one of these senators that was up there. Again, he said that we have the greatest economy. He said last year, 2018, was the greatest economy in his lifetime. And he wasn't a young guy. You know, greatest economy in his lifetime. It's not a great economy. We had 2.9% GDP growth. But the crazy thing about it is the actual nominal debt, the national debt grew by more than the GDP. How is that a great economy? It's like your liabilities are increasing faster than your assets. There's nothing great about that. All we have is a gigantic bubble. But Trump doesn't just say it's the greatest economy in his lifetime, and he's been alive longer than this senator. He, said, he says it's the greatest economy in the lifetime of the country. So how do you justify in the greatest economy in the lifetime of the country where we already have massive fiscal stimulus how do you justify another dose of monetary stimulus? I wanted to get an answer to that, but unfortunately, nobody asked the question. And of course, if you actually listen to what Powell said about the U.S. economy, because he described it many times, he always used the exact same words. First, he said, I think the U.S. economy is in a good place. A good place? <laughs> it's in a precarious place. It's like perched on the edge of a cliff. It's any place but a good place. But the other words that he kept using to describe the U.S. economy was doing reasonably well. The U.S. economy was doing reasonably well. He said it over and over again yesterday and today, reasonably well. I guess he had totally rehearsed that term of reasonably well. Well, if the president describes the U.S. economy as the greatest in U.S. history and Powell describes it as doing reasonably well, obviously there's a lot of daylight between those two descriptions, right, between reasonably well and the greatest ever, right? There's there's a big gap there. So it would have been nice uh, to get Powell to comment 
on the difference between an economy that he believes is doing reasonably well and one that Donald Trump thinks is the strongest in U.S. history. Yet, despite the fact that Trump is the one that thinks the economy is the strongest ever and Powell only thinks it's doing reasonably well, Trump is the one that says we need immediate big rate cuts, 50 basis points, more. He wants more QE, even though he thinks the economy is much stronger than Powell, obviously, thinks the economy is. Now, one of the questions that was asked for political purposes was asked by the Republicans, and they were, she was, I forget which uh, person asked it, congressman, senator, but trying to get Powell to come out against an increase in the minimum wage, right? Because they have a new bill now pending before uh, Congress to uh, increase the national minimum wage to so $15 an hour. Of course, it's not going to pass, right? But it's there. And it's just a political issue for the 2020 election. And so they want to get a Powell on record or saying it's a bad idea. But instead of having the courage to answer the question, Powell's answer was that he had no position on the minimum wage, that it wasn't something they, they thought about or discussed at the Fed. And so it's totally up to Congress. They couldn't care less either way. They have no position, which makes no sense at all. Because remember, if you ask Powell, what's the Fed mandate? It's low inflation and maximum employment. So employment is a mandate. The Fed is supposed to be concentrating on employment. Well, how could you say that your mandate is full employment and therefore you're conducting policy to try to generate full employment, but have never considered or taken a position on the minimum wage? I mean, the minimum wage is a important factor in employment. In fact, it's a barrier to employment for people who have low skills or no skills and are looking to enter the labor market. So if you are, you know, mandated... Uh, to care about employment, to say that you don't even think about and don't have a position on the minimum wage. I mean, it's completely unbelievable. So the reality is Powell obviously knows the minimum wage is bad. I mean, you have to be an idiot not to know that. I mean, if you, if you know anything about economics, you know that. You know that when you set a price right above the market price, you create a surplus, in this case, a surplus of people who want jobs. They can't find them. I mean, this is econ 101. But the problem is, Powell is afraid to piss off all the Democrats by actually supporting a Republican position. So he always wants to be neutral. So he pretends the Fed hasn't considered this because he doesn't want to embarrass the Democrats by saying that, you know, their major issue, this minimum wage law, is actually terrible for the economy because it creates unemployment. So instead, he pretends that they don't have a position. But, you know, once, you know, you see them lying on one thing, right, you know, I mean, they lie about everything. That's what they're doing up there. Now, another, I think it was a Republican, you know, asked Powell if he was worried about, you know, what was happening to the economy, you know, by keeping interest rates too low. Like, hey, you're about to cut rates again, but they're already low. And, you know, are you worried that there's going to be a problem here if we keep interest rates really low and, and then we never get far away from zero, right? Uh, the question was, aren't you worried that if we continue along this path, the U.S. could end up like Japan, right? And of course, that's supposedly the worst thing that can happen to you is you become Japan. I mean, that's not even close to the worst thing that can happen to you. Look what's happening in Venezuela, right? Look what's happened in Zimbabwe, right? I mean, there's a big difference between the situation in Japan and the situation in those countries or things that happen in, you know, Argentina. I mean, that's what the U.S. is in danger of becoming. Argentina, we'd be, you know, we'd be getting off lucky if we ended up like Japan. I mean, it's going to be a whole lot worse than Japan. But of course, the minute you say we might be Japan, Powell's going to push back. Oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. Things are never going to get that bad. He's not worried about us keeping interest rates too low. And in one respect, he's right. Again, because we're not going to be like Japan. We are going to have a massive dollar crisis. We're going to have runaway inflation. We're going to have this stagflation. So we're not going to be dealing with the problems that we believe Japan is dealing with. We're going to be dealing with a whole different set of problems, again, more similar uh, to what Argentina has gone through or other countries that have had lots of debt and tried to inflate them away. You know, we are not in the position that Japan is in. We are not a creditor nation. We don't have trade surpluses. We don't have ample uh, domestic savings. The economic differences between Japan and the United States is night and day. We are in much worse shape. Now, I agree the Japanese government, the Bank of Japan, has damaged the Japanese economy over the years uh, with its monetary policy, and the Japanese are going to have to pay for that. But I think that the bill that the American economy is going to have to pay for the mistakes that we made is going to be much greater. Now, of course, you know, with Judy Shelton 
being uh, one of Trump's nominees for the for the FOMC, we got a question on the gold standard. Right, uh, Powell was asked if he would support a return to the gold standard, and what do you know? What a shocker! He said no. Right, he does not think we should go back uh, to a gold standard. Now, of course, you know what what central banker wants to go back to a gold standard, right? Because that means you're out of a job. Because if we, if we have a gold standard, then we don't need these clowns, right? Because these guys are supposedly substituting their judgment for the market. Because under a gold standard, you can't do all these crazy things that the Fed wants to do. You have discipline. You have free market discipline. And of course, uh, when Powell said that he doesn't want to go back on the gold standard, he basically said that the gold standard is no good, that the gold standard causes all these problems, and that's why no other country is on the gold standard, right? Which is all BS. I mean, first of all, the U.S. economy in the uh, 19th century, when we were on the gold standard, performed much better than it did in the 20th century and now the 21st century when we're off the gold standard, right? We had stronger economic growth. Living standards rose, right? Well, we had a, we're on a gold standard and the dollar maintained its purchasing power. In fact, the dollar increased in value. As I mentioned on this podcast, between 1800 and 1900, while the economy was booming, consumer prices were cut in half. We had 100 years of falling prices and prosperity. I mean, obviously, we had some wars in there uh, that intervened, but cut that out. The economy did extremely well, particularly in the Gilded Age, right, between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of the First World War, uh, when we were on the purest gold standard we've ever been on, and we had the most Uh, the most economic growth that we've ever had. So it's just pure nonsense to say that the gold standard didn't work. It worked like a charm. What we have now doesn't work. But also, Powell tried to claim that, well, all the other nations decided to go off the gold standard. No, they didn't. We tricked the world into going off the gold standard. It's our fault. Remember, before Bretton Woods, before the world adopted the dollar standard, the world was on a gold standard. It wasn't, you know, yes, the British pound was the, was the dominant currency, but it wasn't the reserve. Everybody had gold. That's what everybody was doing. All the central banks backed their currencies with gold. That's what gave the currency value. That's what the pound was backed by, although the pound sterling was sterling, silver, but the British had gold reserves, right? That gold was money. The paper was just a substitute that made it more convenient to transact in that money. But the money was gold. And we got the world. We sold the world on the idea of a dollar standard because we had all the gold. America had most of the gold, right? Because we were the richest creditor nation. We earned all this gold by selling people stuff. And in order to pay for it, they sent us their gold, right? And of course, we won the Second World War and we were in great shape relative to the rest of the world. And so we told the world, we convinced the world, hey, instead of just holding gold, just hold dollars because the dollar is convertible into gold. You can get an ounce of gold for every $35. So just hold dollars. You can earn some interest. And, you know, whenever you want your gold, just ask for it. We'll give it to you. Right. So the world trusted us. They trusted the United States right, to hold their gold. And so the world went on the dollar standard because the dollar was as good as gold, because you could always get gold for your dollars. So we are the ones that marched the world uh, off the gold standard. That's it. That's why. It's not like they just decided to do it. You know, we got them to do it. And obviously, it's been in our best interest, especially since Nixon took us off the gold standard, where we can print money without having to have gold. And that's how we've been able to live beyond our means and run these massive imbalances that are ultimately going to be the cause of our future demise. But the fact of the matter is, we took the world off the gold standard, and the world is going to go back on the gold standard. It's the dollar crisis. When the dollar crashes, you know. In fact, one of the things that Powell said was that one of the reasons he doesn't think that the U.S. dollar is going to lose its status as the world's reserve currency anytime soon is because there's no currency that could replace it. Therefore, the world is stuck because they have no other choice. They have to hold dollars as the reserve currency. And that's not true. We don't need a reserve currency. Gold is a better reserve than any fiat currency. So if the world is going to ditch the dollar as the reserve, it will just go back to what existed before the dollar, which is going back to a gold standard. Now, of course, just because 
you know, America took the world off the gold standard, I mean, any nation could have come back on if it wanted to. The main reason that countries haven't gone back to a gold standard once they got off it was because the politicians have no incentive to do that. I mean, a gold standard is great for the economy. It's great for the people, but it's lousy for the politicians because the politicians want to get elected promising something for nothing. And that's a lot harder to do when you have to pay for the something with gold. But if you could just run debt and print money to pretend that you're giving people something for nothing, then not being on a gold standard is a great thing. It's very difficult for politicians to get off the gold standard because you're basically telling the people that you're going to destroy the value of their money. So it's difficult to get off the gold standard. But once you've conned the public into, into, into going off of it, well, then you're not going to go back on because, you know, why would you want to do that? Right? Everything is great for the politicians. Remember, politicians, despite what they say, they don't care about the country. They only care about themselves. You know, politics is their job. They've chosen politics as a way to maximize their own income, to maximize their own lifestyle. Right? Now, look, this is human nature. Now, I've got no problem with people being greedy and people just wanting to get rich, but not when they're in government. That's the problem. If they're in the private sector, that's fine. Because the only way you get rich in the private sector is to, is to satisfy uh, the demands of everybody else. It's, it's the invisible hand. You enrich yourselves by enriching others, by making other people's lives better, by producing products or providing services that they value more than the money they pay. Uh, so it's a win-win. So I'm fine with people being greedy in the private sector. Except when they're greedy in the public sector, it's a totally different story. They get rich by making everybody else miserable, right? That's what happens. So it's fine when greedy people are in the private sector. Where it's not fine is when they go to government. Because everybody's trying to, you know, do as well as they can for themselves. It's just that the businessman maybe is honest about it. The politician lies about it. But now the politician uses the power of government to get rich. He uses brute force and the ability that they can arrest you and send you to jail. In the private sector, you, don't, you can't do that. It's a voluntary exchange. You have to convince somebody to do business with you. They don't do business with you at the point of a gun, but that's what the government does. It's basically my way or the highway. So since you have all these politicians that care about themselves and not their country, that's why they're not on a gold standard. If they cared about their country, they would be. But of course, they will be when they have no choice. And when we have a monetary crisis, when people are losing confidence in paper money, then they are going to embrace gold, not Bitcoin. You know, by the way, uh, there, was, there were a lot of questions that were being asked about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Libra. In fact, one of the, one of the more comical uh, moments is one of the uh, congressmen yesterday, because initially they started talking about Libra. And so then he had a question about LIBOR, but he mispronounced it as Libra. So he started talking about Libra when he met LIBOR, which is London Interbank Offer Rate. But he was calling it Libra because the people before him had been talking so much about Libra. Uh, and so it was kind of, it was, you know, obviously, I think, I don't think, I think he knows uh, uh, what LIBOR is. It's just that hearing the word Libra so many times uh, right before his question, I guess he just started saying Libra uh, by mistake and... Uh, I didn't see any coverage of that. I mean, you know, I mean, I guess they don't want to embarrass him. The media doesn't like to embarrass uh, a Democrat uh, when they say something foolish uh, by mistake, but they love doing it when, uh, you know, a Republican does. Like the president, when he gave his, his talk on the 4th of July, uh, he, he made some kind of reference to the uh, Revolutionary War and the fact that we secured the airports, right? That, you know, the, the, uh, the founding fathers or the revolutionary... Uh, fighters that they secured the airports in 1776. Now, obviously, a lot of people are making fun of the president talking about airports in 1776. Look, I don't think uh, President Trump actually thinks that we had airplanes back in 1776, right? He knows that uh, uh, Paul Revere didn't have one if by land, two if by sea, three if by air. Air was not a possibility. I mean, maybe they had uh, hot air balloons back then, uh, but you didn't need an airport for that. I don't know what caused the president to misspeak. Just like I don't know what caused this congressman uh, to say uh, Libra instead of LIBOR, although I just think it was, you know, the fact that he had heard it so many times. But it's interesting that the media doesn't want to try to embarrass this guy because uh, he's a Democrat and maybe also because he's an African-American. So they specifically don't want to uh, make fun of an African-American, right? There's a double standard there. But 
had plenty of time trying to make fun of, of President Trump uh, when he just makes an innocent gaffe that anybody can make. You know, try to speak in front of a large public audience. You know, it's not easy. You know, and uh, it's easy sometimes to just uh, say something that you don't really mean under those circumstances. But getting back to what I was talking about here about uh, about Bitcoin. So apart from all the discussion about all the regulation that's going to have to be there on Facebook and on and on Libra, Powell actually, you know, spoke about Bitcoin uh, when he was asked about whether he was concerned about Bitcoin as a currency. And he basically said, no, I'm not concerned about it because he said basically nobody uses Bitcoin as a payment method, which is true. Nobody does because it, it doesn't function very well as a payment method, which is one of the reasons why it's not going to be money is because it doesn't work very well as a you know means of payment, right? as a unit of account or as a medium of exchange. But what he then said was that the reason people are buying Bitcoin is because it's gold. It's like gold. He said it's a store of value. So he basically legitimized Bitcoin and said that the people who are buying Bitcoin are in fact buying something like gold. He basically validated that narrative. Now, I'm sure Bitcoin community is going to take this and run with it, just like they always do. They're going to play this up, and they're probably going to get some clips of Jerome Powell saying that Bitcoin is like gold and Bitcoin is a store of value, when it's neither. It's nothing like gold, and it doesn't store any value because it doesn't have any value to store. You know, by the way, in case you missed this, I mentioned it on the last podcast. I am doing the first ever Peter Schiff Bitcoin Challenge live on YouTube. I remember some time ago, I said that I would be doing uh, some live uh, uh, YouTube events where people can uh, participate and ask questions. And so I'm going to do the first one on Bitcoin. And that's because there's been a lot of fake news about me, about how I'm warming up to Bitcoin, how I'm liking Bitcoin, all because, you know, I accepted some free Bitcoin from people who wanted to give it to me. And I admitted that I had accepted a gift of Bitcoin in the past a tiny amount of money, suddenly that means I'm in love with Bitcoin. I got a secret cross on Bitcoin or I'm some kind of hypocrite. So I'm going to set the record straight, but I am going to allow people who think they can convince me that I'm wrong to convince me. So I'm, everybody can participate as far as listening in, but I only want the people to actually ask questions who disagree with me on Bitcoin. So if you agree with me, if you think I'm spot on, then you know just tune in. Uh, but don't uh, don't uh, you know ask me any questions. And you know maybe maybe these guys will convince you. Now I doubt it. They have a pretty tough uh, uh, road ahead of them if they think they're going to convince me that uh, Bitcoin is digital gold. But again, I got an open mind, right? If somebody can say something to me that I haven't heard or make a point that I hadn't considered, and they can bring me over right to the other side, well then fine. You know we'll see what happens. But it's going to be Monday night, nine o'clock Eastern time. In the United States, Eastern Daylight Time, uh, 6 uh, o'clock Pacific Time. That's Monday. It is uh, July 15th. But what it really reminded me of when I heard um, Jerome Powell mention this, it really reminded me of when Alan Greenspan was Fed chairman and he was asked about adjustable rate mortgages. And he said they were a great thing. He said it was an example of homeowners being smart and managing their, you know, their net worth and the whole idea about home equity loans. He said they were good. He said, if people have all this equity in their house, it's all tied up. Why not borrow it out and spend it? He was basically congratulating homeowners for being smart enough to take out loans against their houses. And he said, I think it makes sense to take out an adjustable rate mortgage because you save money. This, even as he was about to raise rates, he was making these comments as interest rates were at 1% or just barely above, and he was about to raise interest rates substantially. Instead of encouraging homeowners to lock in low rates for as long as they could, he was actually giving them the opposite advice. Just gamble, take out an adjustable rate mortgage, which of course was one of the reasons that the housing collapse was so bad was because so many people followed uh, Greenspan's advice. And in fact, the Fed basically officially blessed the whole concept of an adjustable rate mortgage and a home equity you know, refi. I'm sure a lot of people were emboldened uh, by those comments to do exactly what um, Greenspan said they should do and that they were smart for doing. Well, that's what's happening now with Powell and Bitcoin. Basically, he's legitimized Bitcoin. He has uh, taken up uh, the, the selling point that is gold, that people who are buying it are buying it as a store of value. So now people might 
follow his advice. Oh, you know, Powell said that Bitcoin is like gold. It's digital gold. It's a store of value. Oh, I'm going to go buy some, right? Well, buying Bitcoin based on Powell's advice is the same thing as taking out adjustable rate mortgages based on Greenspan's advice. Because under Greenspan's case, people took out adjustable rate mortgages and then the rates went up and they couldn't afford it and they lost their house. Well, the people uh, who um, follow Powell's advice on buying Bitcoin, well, they're going to lose everything too. They're going to lose all the money that they put into Bitcoin. They should put it into gold. If they want to store value, and believe me, they need a store of value, especially given what Powell is doing, right? But his comments, again, show that he doesn't understand Bitcoin and he doesn't understand gold, which is why he doesn't think that we should be under a gold standard because he doesn't understand what gold is and he has no idea of the benefits of being under a gold standard. Because, of course, he is so arrogant as to think that the economy is better served by him, right? Because he's so much smarter than the free market. And that putting our faith in a bunch of men on the Fed, like him and his buddies, that that's better than putting your faith in gold. It's not, but the hubris of these guys, that's how they think. I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about another story that is really making me mad. It's one of these Jesse Smollett type stories or uh, a story where the high school uh, boys in Washington, D.C. with that Native American banging his drum, where the media basically fabricates a fake racist story to try to show how racist America is. You know, and of course, the reason that the media needs to fabricate so many fake racist stories is because there's a massive demand for these type of news stories, but there's a lack of supply because you don't really have all the racism that the left wants to pretend exists. So they have to make it up. They have to twist everything and, and, and make something that, that's not racist, racist. So if you didn't hear this story, right, here are the details. And you can go and you can watch the YouTube video and see for yourself. I'm not making any of this stuff up. And of course, if you're a regular listener to my podcast, you know that I don't uh, make stuff up. But anyway... So there's a guy uh, who happens to work for YouTube, as a matter of fact. Uh, but the guy lives in San Francisco, and he was with his son, and he was going to his apartment, his home. He lives in like a small building, uh, and so it's, I forget how many stories it is, but it's a small uh, brownstone-type um, apartment in San Francisco. And typically, these smaller apartments don't have doormen, right? Because they can't afford it, right? If you live in a really tall building, a skyscraper that has hundreds of apartments, you can afford to have a doorman. And it's usually not one doorman. You need a bunch of them because the doormen generally are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you need shifts, right? Because nobody works more than eight hours in one day and they don't work more than five days a week. So you really have to have a group of people that can be doormen. And in order to afford that, you need to have a large uh, group of tenants uh, contributing uh, to their salary. So when you live in a small uh, building where you maybe have, you know, five or six, seven different tenants or whatever, you can't have the security of a, of a doorman. But what you generally have is a security system where you have buzzers and, you know, you ring the apartment of the person you want to visit and, you know, they buzz you in, right? Once they know who you are, they buzz you in and you come in. But of course, you know, if you live there, you probably have a key. You don't need to get buzzed in. But what happens a lot of times in these small buildings is somebody lets themselves in or somebody gets buzzed in and then somebody else could quickly come in behind them and gain entrance into the building without having been buzzed in. And they actually have a word for this because it's so common. They call it tailgating, right? And of course, you're not supposed to do that. And the neighbors, of course, will normally get very upset with somebody who allows a tailgater to come into the building. Because after all, what if he's a criminal? He could be there to rob, right? Or he could be there to harass a resident. Who knows, right? Maybe, maybe you know, there, there could be a million reasons why somebody could be trying to get into a building. Uh, but they need to get in by buzzing and the occupant, the tenant, has to buzz them in. So generally what you do is if somebody is behind you, you make sure to close the door so that they can't just get in and now they have to uh, buzz the person they've come to, to visit. 
Now, what you also could do, if you don't want to be rude, some people just don't like to close a door on another person. So one thing you could do is politely say, oh, uh, who are you here to visit, you know, in this building? And if the person says, well, I'm here to visit so-and-so, well, then you might say, oh, okay, come on in. Because, you know, if they're just coming to rob the building, the chances are they won't know the name of a resident. And in these small buildings, most people know all their neighbors. And so if you ask somebody, who are you here to visit, uh, and they tell you, oh, okay, here, come on in. I mean, they might do that. And I think that's what was happening in this particular case, right? Because this guy had opened up the door to come to his apartment, and this other guy just followed him in. And now he's inside the building. And so the, uh, the guy that lives there, who happens to be white, and the guy who is potentially a trespasser, but he doesn't know, but this guy happens to be black. And that's the problem, right? So the white guy asks uh, the black guy, who are you here to visit? And the black guy says, I'm not telling you. It's none of your business. And he's like, well, well, you got to tell me because other, you know, you're, you're, you're coming into the building. You didn't buzz in. You got to leave unless you tell me who you're here to visit. And all of a sudden, the black guy makes it into a racial thing. Oh, you're only asking me this because I'm black. The fact that he was black had nothing to do with it. He would ask the same question to a guy who was white, right? But now this guy is making an issue of it, except he's got his cell phone out and he's, got the, and he's making a video the whole time. I mean, this guy was trying to create a conflict and he actually is saying to this guy, hey, you're going to be the next guy on YouTube. You're going to be a racist. Everybody's going to know you as a racist. So you better, you know, you better walk away. You better just let me do what I want to do. You better let me into this building, right? And, and then the guy is like, well, if you're not going to tell me who you're here to see and you're not going to leave, I'm going to call the cops. All the guy had to do to avoid the confrontation was answer the question. Who are you here to visit? I'm here to visit so-and-so. Problem solved. No big deal. No police. But then again, there'd be no viral video. That's what the guy wanted. He wanted his opportunity. He was exploiting the opportunity to film a potentially viral video. That's the real reason that he didn't want to answer the question. It wasn't that he felt that he was being victimized by a racist. He saw an opportunity and he seized it, right? And that's, again, oh, you're calling the cops on a black man, right? Well, that's why you're calling the cops. It's because I'm black. But of course, it had nothing to do with the fact that he was black. There wasn't a single racist word that was spoken by this guy. In fact, he was there with his young son, right? And the people who posted this video online made a big deal of the fact that the son was kind of crying and, and didn't want the dad to call the police, wanted the dad to just walk away. And the spin was that this little boy, maybe he was five years old, even he knew that his father was a racist. And the reason he was upset was because he knew his father was wrong and his father was being a racist, which of course, uh, that's not the truth. The son didn't know that. The son probably just didn't want a confrontation and was afraid of something bad happening, especially after we learned after the fact, based on, I guess, an interview with this guy, that his father had been murdered by a trespasser in his building who he had confronted. And so since this guy's dad had been murdered following a confrontation with a trespasser, this guy didn't want to take any chances, and so he just politely called the police. Meanwhile, it's the black guy who's being rude. In fact, he's not just being rude. He's being an asshole, right? And he's cursing in front of this guy's little, little, little son. Uh, and somehow, he's got all the sympathy. In fact, when I'm reading some of these stories, the, the, the white guy who called the police, he's actually apologized to the black guy. For what? He did nothing wrong. And I hate it when people who do nothing wrong apologize because it just fuels the narrative, right? Now, of course, he didn't say he did anything wrong. He apologized if his actions uh, offended this guy or made this guy feel bad because of prior uh, uh, problems he've had with people making snap judgments about him because he was black, right? After all, oh, the only reason that you're questioning me is because I'm black. No, he was questioning him because he was trying to gain entry to a secure building without being buzzed in or saying who he was going to visit. You know, the racist is this black guy because the black guy basically wants special treatment because he's black, right? Basically, what he's saying is if a white person wants to sneak into a building, it's okay to ask him questions and try to stop him. But if a black guy is potentially sneaking into a building, you just got to turn around and look the other way and let him sneak in 
because you can't risk offending somebody who's black. Therefore, you have to let them do whatever they want because if you treat them like you would treat somebody who's white, now you're going to be accused of being racist. But, you know, the reason that this guy was so sure that the media would run this BS story is the same reason that Jesse Smollett believed that he could get away with his BS story is because the media wants uh, these racist stories. Uh, not because there is racism, but because they actually are trying to cultivate racism. Remember, the media, the left, right, which controls the media, the left wants racism. They want society to be more racist. Now, why would they want that, right? Because they're always saying, oh, racism is so bad. Racism is a problem. So if racism is bad and racism is a problem, why do the liberals want more racism? Well, it's simple. That's how they win elections. They're selling uh, the cure for victimization, right? The left wants to convince every black in America that he or she is a victim, right? That you've got no chance in life, you can't succeed because you're victimized by all these terrible racists. And your only chance is to elect me because I will save you from these racists. I will punish the racists. I will help you get revenge on the racists. So vote for me, right? So they need to create racism. They need to create the fear of racism. And of course, a lot of people psychologically, racism is a crutch, right? If you're a black person and you just haven't succeeded in life for whatever reason, right? Well, it's not your fault. It's not that you did anything wrong. It's not that you didn't work hard or you weren't smart. It's because you were the victim of racism, right? That That's the easy way out. I didn't succeed because of racism, right? I had no chance, right? It was the racist that prevented me from achieving success, which is all BS because there are plenty of black people in America who are very successful, extremely successful. There are billionaire, self-made black billionaires in this country. Now, if the country is as racist as the liberals want us to believe, how did these blacks succeed? How did they become some wealthy if the society is so racist? It's because the society is not that racist. Am I saying there's no racism? No, of course there's some racism, but it's not nearly as big a problem as the left wants everybody to believe. And in fact, most of the discrimination that takes place based on race is a direct result of government laws, of government anti-discrimination laws that actually backfire and cause people to discriminate. But the discrimination is not based on racism, it's based on economic incentives created by government. So stories like this create racism because a lot of blacks, right, they may not read the whole story. They may not watch the video, right? They're just going to read the headlines and say, yep, yep, yep. Another example, typical racist. This is what we have to deal with, right? It reinforces that idea. Oh, and I can't succeed because there's all these racists out to get me. And even if you do watch the video, you're watching it with your mind already made up. Just based on the headlines and the introduction, you're already viewing it through a distorted prism. So you see what you want to see. So this, just like all those people on the left, when they were talking about, I forget the kid's name who was standing there while the, the Indian, Native American was beating that drum, and everybody was disgusted by the smirk on his face. They kept saying, oh, the smirk, I just want to punch that kid in the face. What smirk? He was just smiling. There was nothing sinister about his smile. Yet all the people that just jumped to the conclusion that this kid was, you know, the reincarnation of Adolf Hitler, all of a sudden he had this smirk on his face because you see what you want to see. Racism is in the eye of the beholder. And the left, that's all they do is, is behold racism everywhere they see it. So this is going to create more uh, fear of racism on the part of blacks, but on the part of whites, look, there are going to be some white people that just get so pissed off by all the constant... Uh, accusations of racism where there is no racism that there's a backlash people start resenting this whole thing and it also minimizes actual racism which does exist right i'm not saying it doesn't exist anywhere but by 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 taking stuff like this and claiming that this is racism then you let the actual racists off the hook look you know once upon a time there was a lot more anti-semitism in america than there is today but, you know, anti-Semitism didn't stop Jews from succeeding in this country. They succeeded despite that anti-Semitism. And, of course, there's less of it now. And, yes, we had racism in America. But I don't know if anybody who's going to argue that we have more racism today 
than we did 50 years ago, than we did 100 years ago, clearly the nation is more tolerant. So if we have less racism today than we had 50 or 100 years ago, yet the economic problems, let's say in the black community, are greater now than they were 50 or 100 years ago relative to overall society, right? If the problems in the black community have gotten worse as there is less racism, then racism is not the reason for the problem, right? Because if racism is going down as the problems are going up, then there's got to be something else. There must be something else at work here that is causing all these problems because it's clearly not racism. But what none of the race baiters want to admit, none of these poverty pimps, limousine liberals on the left, the one they don't want to accept is that it's their programs. It's the great society programs. It's the welfare state. It's the anti-discrimination laws. It's everything that the left is doing. That is what has backfired. That is what is creating all the problems that they're trying to blame on racism and that they're trying to create fake incidents of racism just so they can increase the number of victims who will vote for them because they're buying uh, their snake oil that the key to their success lies in some government program and some government regulation. When what really is the secret to success is to ignore all of the adversaries out there, right? Ignore all of the barriers to your success and just concentrate on overcoming them and being the best that you can be and make your own success and make your own luck, right? And work hard and persevere and don't give up and don't believe that you can't make it because somebody else is discriminating against you. In fact, the biggest barriers to success that exist today are not just in the mentality that you can't make it because you're a victim, but the government is actually creating impediments to success. They are actually passing laws and raising taxes that actually make it harder for the very people they're claiming they want to help to succeed. Thank you.